very sad. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very sad. Very sad. <laughs> Everyone and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for another episode, another conversation about another great script. And we are, we're in this weird world right now where we're like, our episodes are pairing for some reason. I have no idea <laughs> yeah. why that ha- happened. I mean, we arranged the schedule, so it's on us, I guess. It's on us somehow, but somehow we've got this sort of through line happening in the, in this season. We started off with a couple of episodes about musicals. Um, last week, we talked about Dance Nation, which is not a musical. However, dancing and music features prominently in it. And this week, we are talking about dancing at Lunasa by Brian Friel. Yeah, well, it's and it, they're they're very different perspectives on dance this time. Exactly, I will yeah, say, yeah. while dance features prominently in both scripts, their their sense of what dancing is doesn't have a lot to do with each other. I don't think <laughs> we're, we're definitely evolving the theme. We have we have <laughs> we have left our original spot, but still the through line is evident. Um, excited to talk about this play by an amazing playwright, uh, a well lauded playwright, uh, uh, someone who is held near and dear to people's hearts and Brian Friel, um, and uh, and also just this play, which kind of took its uh, its moment by storm um, and has since had lots of revivals, very well loved for lots and lots of reasons. So yeah, I'm excited to get to talk about it. Yes, and, and great movie adaption as well, which is always nice to do plays that have movie adaptions just because the, the audience gives a little bit wider. But this is, you know, a really great play as a play out of Ireland too. And so yeah. we, uh, you know, this, is we, we do this at different points in episodes without a ton of consistency, but it's probably worth saying that we're Americans, and right. so our sense of Irish culture and Irish pronunciation and stuff like that, there's going to be stuff that we miss, undoubtedly. There's going to be stuff that probably we misinterpret. So as always, we invite the conversation to continue outside of this podcast, outside of this, you know, around about an hour that Jackson and I will talk. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's definitely worth saying at the start, we may have inherited, especially in my case, I've inherited quite a bit through my mother's and mother and my grandmother from my Irish side, but we are yet uh, ultimately pretty removed from the world that Friel is writing about. So there are definitely some things that, that uh, we we, uh, we might miss, and, and that's part of the, the joy of getting to broaden the conversation out to folks um, and uh, out into uh, continuing to talk about this play, even, even uh, after the podcast is finished. Yeah, and, and Dancing with Lanasa is a great play. It's it's remarkably moving, even for how removed like my contemporary life in 2022 America feels from this story about rural Ireland in the 90s, you know? Or no, the, thir- the 30s. I said 90s, yeah, 30s, but I meant yeah. 30s. So we're like <laughs> almost 100 years removed from the setting of the play, and yet there's still so much that just kind of shakes you about the way that the family is portrayed and and the way the story is told. So it's a great play to have a conversation about, even despite the the kind of gulf that will exist a little bit in the conversation setting and the play setting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big, big sort of themes sort of run through themes of of uh, trying to belong or trying to have joy in the face of trials, all these sorts of things. Excited to get into the conversation around it. Absolutely, yes. Before we get too far, too much farther, I guess I should say, <laughs> we will invite everybody to consider heading over to patreon.com slash podcast. That's patreon.com slash podcast. All one word. That's the easiest way to find us on Patreon. Over there, if you haven't already done so, you can become a supporter of the show. It is just such a wonderful opportunity to be able to do this podcast in the way that we've been able to do it. And and the way that we've been able to do it is primarily because of the folks who are supporting us on Patreon. We love to do this show. It's just not free to do. And, And there's, as anybody else who's run a podcast knows, there are 
there are there's money that goes into running a podcast, running a weekly podcast. There's a pretty significant time investment, and we just couldn't do it. It just would be a, a factual impossibility for us to be able to do no script in the way it's existed without the folks that are supporting us on Patreon. If you head over there, you take a look at our page there, you can see we've got a couple of different tiers. The tiers correspond to a monthly amount. The lowest amount is a dollar a month. I think that's really affordable. I think $12 a year is easily you're getting that much return on the time that you spend with NoScript. And and as I have said a lot, I know a lot of folks that would just like, if somebody needed $12 in their life, would just be like, here, have $12. What do you even ask? I mean, fine, here, here's $12, whatever, you know? So I, that's, I think, the, the level that we really encourage people to consider joining us to support at. There's higher levels, of course. If you can afford more, that's spectacular. Uh, but that $1 a month level, even that is really, really helpful to us. And th- there are perks to being a patron. Of course there are. You can check those out on NoScript, what goes on over there on patreon.com slash Podcast. If you're a supporter, huge, huge thank you to you. Can't say it enough. You make running the show possible for us. So big thank you to you all. Yes, thank you all very, very much. We we love you guys over there, all of y'all over there. Um, and uh, looking forward to seeing you at patreon.com slash no script podcast. And now back to the script. Here we go. I'm gonna I considered jump in. just for a second doing that in an <laughs> Irish accent, but then I was like, yeah. no, no, nice. not gonna do it. <laughs> I have been I will say, look, I've been in uh, at last count, three plays in which I had to do an Irish accent. And I actually nice. feel okay about my Irish accent, my <laughs> stage act. I recognize that it's not good, really. I mean, if you're an Irish person, I, sure. I am in my life right now. I spend quite a bit of time with an Irish person. And I would assume that she would not be super thrilled with my Irish accent. But for what it is... I actually feel okay about it, but I'm not going to do it in our podcast episode here. So that was a teaser for something you're never going to get paid off. We're going to get <laughs> admirable control. Um, <laughs> uh, we're going to jump in just a little bit with some context on Brian Friel and the play Dancing at Lunasa. Um, th- so, so Brian Friel has uh, an, illustri- uh, an uh, illustrative, I don't know, a, a long career, um, and it's full of a lot of things. Um, um, uh, he was he was born um, in in Ireland in I believe uh, County Tyrone and uh, grew up there and and started writing at a very uh, in, in 1959 uh, his or 58 actually his first radio play is produced by the BBC. Um, he also had a long career in politics as well. A lot of his early plays were very political, um, especially uh, around uh, the, the troubles and the and and Ireland trying to to uh, kind of um, navigate. It's 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 nationalism and all that. So so he has a lot of uh, kind of career in that as well. Served in the Senate for a while. but uh, he also has 24 plays, um, uh, a, a large anthology of plays, and uh, I believe 14 of them are set in this kind of fictional small town that he has created of Ballybeg, which in Irish uh, Gaelic is a small town. So uh, amongst those plays that are set in Ballybeg is the play that we're talking about today, Dancing at Lunasa. Um yeah, so he had uh, a good deal of success in his plays uh, throughout uh, the 1950s and and up to the to the 80s. Um, he briefly served a stint on the Senate of Ireland, and then in 1990, his uh, Dancing of Lunasa play comes to uh, life, and that kind of brings him back around again. Um, the the play uh, had its first productions in uh, 1990 at the Abbey Theatre, um, and then was transferred to the National Theatre in London in 1991. Uh, so, so it goes from Dublin at the Abbey over to the National Theatre in 1991. It then goes to Broadway at the Plymouth Theatre, and it won a bunch of awards there. It won the Tony Award, it won the Drama Desk Award, it won an Olivier Award over for the BBC for Best Play. Um, uh, it has a number of revivals, 1999 and 2000. Uh, there was a Dublin revival, another Dublin revival in 2004, another <laughs> London revival in 2009. And in addition to that, there was the film in 1998, right before the Dublin revival, um, which starred Meryl Streep and uh, directed by Pat O'Connor. Um, 
Um, so so uh, the the play kind of just has this 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 blossoming that happens in the '90s all the way through the 2000s. Um, it's it's a it's a it's a play uh, with a with a relatively small cast. Um, uh, not not a not a huge cast of characters. Um, but just just intense relationships, and you get to see this play done quite a bit. Um, uh, even even up to today, either in regional houses or in college theater, often. Um, uh, a lot of a lot of uh, it, it, it winds up being a great role to be practicing a regional dialect. Um, and so it's kind of one of those plays that if you have a group of actors that that is kind of their focus, this play comes up pretty quickly on the list of, of plays that, that you want to be able to do. Both for that, but also for the kind of depth of character that is in here of, of uh, sort of uh, transforming naturalism into uh into deeply meaningful behavior um is 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 a big part of this play uh and, and in fact uh Brian Friel is is sometimes termed the Irish Chekhov for that reason he's playing with realism he's playing with naturalism um and kind of presenting it but also transforming it in some ways which I'm excited to talk about this play has has a lot of naturalism in it but some very sort of surrealist moments um that I'm excited to get to talk about yes 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 for sure Okay, so this is a play, uh, it's a family play, I think you would say. Some people have termed it a memory play, using the Tennessee Williams term for that. Uh, basically, this play is set in 1936 across a couple of weeks in August. That's a little uh, that's a little misleading. It's really only two days, but the two days are separated by a couple of weeks in August. This is August around the time of the harvest, uh, and the harvest festival, the Lunasa, is the where the title gets it from is that in the town where the play is occurring there is this harvest festival which is uh, a festival to a celtic god uh the god of the harvest and that will sort of the, the the ways in which that festival's traditions and ceremonies conflict with the uh, catholicism of the region that 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 some of the characters hold near and dear to will become kind of part of the storytelling the family that we are spending time with is really a group of five sisters, uh, the Mundy sisters. And these women are, uh, are uh, not, not young anymore, not in the sense of being teenagers or children. They are adult siblings, ranging in age quite a bit, from uh, Chris, the youngest, who is 26, uh, Christina, and then all the way up to Kate, the oldest, who is 40, and then all the way in between. We also have Agnes Rose and Maggie sort of filling the gaps in there in terms of their ages. They all have an older brother named Jack. And that makes up the family that we see. There is also a young boy named Michael who is Chris's son uh, by uh, Jerry or Gary. Yeah, yeah, I think Jerry. 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 So Jerry, today at least. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so Jerry and Chris... Uh, have had a son, Michael. Michael, in the present moment of the play, I guess you'd say, or the past moment of the play, I don't know, it gets a little confusing, is uh, is seven years old. So he's young. So th and that, that I've just described as the entire cast of characters for the show. Um, the play is frameworked or scaffolded, I guess, by, and this is what makes it a quote-unquote memory play, whatever that means to you, by Michael narrating the action of the play uh, and the Michael the narrator again whether this is the present moment or the future moment or whatever Michael the narrator is an adult man and he is looking back at this couple of days across a couple of weeks in August in 1936 the time that he spent uh, across that, uh, the really the things that happened to the Mundy family in that period of weeks. And unfortunately, what happens to them is some unfortunate stuff. Um, this play is, is sort of heartbreaking, even amidst all of the beautiful possibility and optimism that the sisters share across what the, the, their conversations in the play. Um, the, the whole play is set in their small house that they all share and their patio, really the kitchen living space that they all share and the patio, this interior exterior space that gets played on some. Um, here's just kind of a, a general overview of what's going on and, and what happens to them. 
Jack, the eldest brother, he's in his mid-50s. He has just returned from serving in Uganda as a missionary to a leper colony. Um, and he has contracted malaria, which at first blush is why he has been sent home to recover. And this is not a spoiler. Michael tells us this very early in the play to die. Uh, that's why you think he's come back across the course of the play. What the sisters learn about their older brother, who has be kind of become a town celebrity for his work in leper colonies in Uganda for his life's dedication to doing this. What they learn is that really he's been sent back because he's sort of lost his faith in the Catholic church and in the, the, the strict religious traditions of the Catholic church at the time. And in fact, has begun to believe deep in his soul in a lot of the religious and spiritual traditions of the people that he's been living with their gods, their religious ceremonies, their religious practices. And so the Catholic church, when they learn this about him, sends him back home uh, out of the leper colony that he spent his life worked in. Because of the malaria, because he's aging, because of the sharp culture change, he is dealing with a lot of struggles in readjusting back into his life in Ireland, back into his family. Uh, Kate is, the again, the oldest of the, the sisters. She's the one that really makes all the money for the family. She's a school teacher. Nobody else really has a job that pays that well, but her job at least pays enough for them to live some sort of modest life together. Um, however, because of Jack's return, it, it, there's a threat to her job because, of course, the, the school that she's teaching at is run by the local Catholic Church, and they're learning these things about Jack. So her job is up for threat. Um, Agnes and Rose, uh, they are they're kind of a pair of sisters. Rose has uh, a disability, a mental disability of some sort. Of course, at the time of writing the play, they just called it simple, but there's some sort of mental disability there. And Agnes is kind of her fierce protector and partner. They sew uh, gloves or, or knit, I'm sorry, gloves and other such things for a, a little scrap of money. And unfortunately, across the course of the play, that income is being shut down because this is the 1930s. There is a fact factory that is uh, coming into the local area, which is going to be able to produce gloves and scarves and the like at a much higher rate for much cheaper. Um, uh, Chris is, uh, of course, her the the person that she had her son Michael by Gary is uh, he is coming back into her life basically he's kind of a wanderer he is not around in fact it's been many many months 11 months or something to that effect since she's last seen him and since he's last seen their son he doesn't really provide any money for the upkeep of their son uh, and in fact Michael says that one of the reasons why he remembers these two days is it's really the first time he's ever been able to observe his father at all in his life at seven years old uh, and Jerry is there now and is proposing that they get married. Um, now this is, it's a little unclear to really even the audience. I think that I've read some online that people have different senses of how, how earnest his suggestion really is in this play, uh, that this may not be a true, that this may be the kind of thing he does all the time and never really means it. And Chris's response when this conversation comes up over and over is you, you say that, but then you just leave. You just leave again and go off wandering. So I don't know what the point of this conversation really is, Jerry, and, and such and such. That's a summary, of course. So all of the sisters have these sort of uh, almost moments, I would say, across the course of the play where things almost happen for them. Amidst the broader landscape of the community, there is the Harvest Festival going on. The sisters at one point consider almost going to have an incredible night of the, the the sort of dancing festival party part of it and then decide they're too old really to go to this sort of thing and how ridiculous for these in their sense of the world in the 1930s their sense of being older women uh going to this festival how silly how ridiculous so they decide not to go rose potentially almost has a budding romance with sort of a local deviant uh that doesn't end up panning out chris and jerry almost maybe make it work 
work for their lives to sort of come together and, and for their relationship to be longstanding, and that doesn't really end up panning out. Um, by the end of the play, all of these almosts have sort of accumulated. Jack ends up passing away due to his malaria after really disturbing his family with the his beliefs nowadays. They sort of come to terms with it. Kate describes it as like uh, his own kind of spiritual journey, and he passes away. Um, Agnes and Rose, when they learn that their source of income for the family, the little modicum of income they can provide, is gone, decide just to leave and kind of go off on their own. Please don't search for us. And they leave and they go off on their own. And they're never seen again until Michael, many years later, finds that Agnes has died and Rose is like living in a poor house. It's very sad. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very sad. Very sad. <laughs> Uh, Kate does end up losing her job as a school teacher because of the this is a a little bit of interpretation but I think it's fairly clear because of the Catholic Church's view of Jack's uh, what they would describe as pagan beliefs that he's taken on after his time in Uganda. I'm sure there are little bits of things that I'm missing. This is this is such an ensemble show where all of the characters is, have yeah. these really specific journeys that they go on. But that's sort of the general sweep of the plot. What you know, what of this play you would really think of as a plot-heavy play? I don't know. I'm not. It's definitely not that. I would think. Yeah, it is. It is truly a, a, a true, true ensemble sort of piece of just like each each moment, one or one character or another is getting its or their moment of <laughs> unfortunate events or moment of trying to change their circumstances or moment of deciding to still have joy despite their circumstances. And each one sort of gets their chance to lead that moment. Um, often, oftentimes, uh, certainly in the movie, uh, uh, Kate and uh, Chris receive quite a bit of of the uh, kind of focus, and really in the play too. Given, uh, given, uh, like uh, Chris and and Jerry's uh, relationship, and of course Michael as the sort of omniscient narrator. Um, there's there's quite a bit of focus put on Chris's story. Um, but but yeah, it is it is sort of I liked what you said. Unfortunate stuff happening. Um, in a lot of ways the uh it's kind of uh to, to kind of keep with the analogy of of uh of lunasa and this sort of harvest festival it's sort of the harvest of a lot of unfortunate stuff um it's it's yeah. this stuff that's been kind of planted long ago um that is kind of coming to fruition now and trying to figure out whether or not they can navigate their way around or through or away from it and, and this is a play, you know, because of the time in which it's set, in which whether or not these women get married has a very uh, influential uh, power over their lives, not just the romanticism of it, although there is some of that, of course there is, but but just in reality, for their economic situation, it's very hard for them to make money. They live in this small town, and Kate's already the school teacher. Right, right. <laughs> they don't need five school teachers, you know? And so there's a very limited amount of jobs that as single women, they can really hold to provide money. And since none of them ever ended up up getting married um and some of that has to do unfortunately my sense of it is of chris because she had a child out of wedlock that really cast a pallor over the the other sisters in their lives when they were young um but so so all that to say some of this play is about the the misfortune of not having gotten married when they were younger and the economic pain, the economic suffering that that has now caused on their life, uh, that they're they're having a hard time making a living. And indeed, by the end of the play, they really can't. Yeah, yeah. So, so you see that, I think, a lot in... Uh, Kate kind of holds a lot of that just under the surface. Um, she 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 holds. There's quite a few um, passive aggressive, sometimes aggressive, but mostly passive aggressive lines about like you know, will this family ever be able to hold their head high? Um, will we ever get out of this um, sort of situation? And 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 I think some of her. It, it rarely comes up again, very passive aggressively, but her own sort of. Um, frustration at being the only one who is able to keep them running. Um, and then the, the fear that happens when that job is, is threatened and ultimately taken away. Um, so, so it, that's, that's all in the water, uh, that they're there. And, and 
And yet there's also this like reflection from Michael about this moment and about the sort of uh, nostalgia for this moment. So even even while he's reflecting on the the pain that's happening around them. Yeah, I, I wonder some if if the character the the prominence of Michael as the narrator has purely to do with the fact that Brian Friel, this is this this play is somewhat based on a very, very loose sense of the stories of his family. And it's not as specific at all as even like Lanford Wilson's Lemon Sky is, which is another memory play. Um, but there is some sense of like perhaps the Michael character as his stand in for Friel. That's the reason why he ends up being such a prominent figure. But very much unlike like I would say the two best examples of memory play quote-unquote are the original memory play glass menagerie and i just mean original because that tennessee williams is the one who used the term in that play and then lamford wilson's lemon sky and compared to those two plays the michael in the present moment of the play not the future narrator but the present moment has very little to do with the plot i mean he's a side character best in fact quite literally he doesn't exist. Yeah, let's talk about I that. I mean, there yeah. is no young Michael. Mm -hmm. uh, so yes, please. Yeah, yeah, that's a fascinating element of this play, which is, is for the most part, uh, a naturalistic play, at least a realistic play. Um, uh, for the most part, you're, you're kind of moving through the scenes. Everyone's kind of going about daily things. There's knitting involved. There's cl cleaning involved. There's cooking of food. Um, all this stuff is happening. And yet there is one distinct element in that Michael, the young Michael, the boy Michael, plays an active role in scenes. Characters talk to him. Characters give him things. He's making kites. He's playing stuff. Um, I don't know about an act role but yeah I mean, he, he has a role he has He's a role and people way. like kiss him on the forehead there's 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 yeah, like that's true. there's like direct interaction with the boy michael who is an imaginative character the adult michael who does the uh interactions and uh and kind of speaks the narrations speaks his lines um uh i assume different casts choose what degree of in character he is whether he is kind of adult uh michael speaking the lines of the boy or adopts a childish voice but he is not sitting into the role um the boy michael right is so he doesn't play the boy michael with his body in space like he could uh, you're describing he could act the lines like a voice actor right sort of would but he's not like embodying boy Michael. Yeah. Yeah. Which is different from the film. The film casts boy Michael and there's a whole other set of scenes that happen as a result of that. Um, but, but in this play, this, a very imaginative thing takes place, which again, kind of leans into this memory play sort of uh, theme of, of uh, he's, he's sort of like watching him watching almost from like a third person perspective, his memories of what happened. But the third person perspective does not include his younger self. Yeah. Right? That's what we're describing. So the, the sisters and ja anybody that then Jerry, anybody that talks to him is talking to empty space. And they're interacting, they're miming their interactions with this young boy, Michael. And that I think is I, I just think that's a really cool way of dealing with the fact that. In our memories, we don't you don't see yourself. Yeah. Right? Because you your memories, just like your life, are experienced through your eyes. So you're not like a, a, a visual character in your memories because your memories are your eyes looking out into the world. So I love I I, I, I don't know exactly how it works. I mean, I watched a bunch of stuff to, to have different examples of it. So I, I, I understand practically how it works. I'm not sure how effective it is. If it's a little more weird than it is. Uh, but, but it, what it, what it definitely is, is fascinatingly interesting. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just to, to think of that being the way to theatricalize memory yeah. and memory because at his younger self would not have seen himself in the memory. Yeah. Yep. 
Absolutely. And especially when you think about uh, like the world that Friel is riding in, he's certainly influenced by Chekhov. He's in influenced by Stanislavski to have this riff on on naturalism, <laughs> to have this sort of like this this uh, surreal sort of very magnetic moment of trying to have actors act with something that isn't there is just a really cool, <laughs> really cool inno innovation on, on theater, really cool innovation on, on naturalism, even as, cause, cause the rest of the play, um, well, not quite the rest of the play because the other sort of piece that allows uh, us entry into this sort of ethereal, surreally memory space is music. Music plays a prevalent theme throughout the play, and even at the end of the play when Michael is kind of reflecting on, um, there's many memories from this summer, etc., but one of the memories that offers itself to me, he bases it in there's music floating through the scene, and people sort of swaying gently to the music, um, that kind of some just to sum it up, it's a beautiful monologue. You should read it. I'm not going to do it now, but to sum it up is is it's just there. There was lots of pain in that time. However, my dominant memory of it is the music coming from this radio, which plays a pretty prominent role in the in the in the play, and uh, my my family sort of swaying gently to that music, a sort of feeling uh, rather than an actual concrete memory is what he holds the most from that summer. And it's interesting because he acknowledges in that final monologue that that's a false memory. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that there that that like this memory at this picture it's basically a tableau image of the family that is an echo of the very first tableau image of the play of this same family with some notable differences that we can talk about. But, but the final one is, so it's this tableau image, of the family and the music is playing and the, the characters are sort of gently swaying, almost dancing, <clears throat> excuse me, almost dancing. And he says, like you're saying that I have this memory of them, but it's a false memory. And that is such a, it's an interesting way to end this play to say, I have this memory of them. That's not real. And it's this kind of picturesque, idealist, uh, of romanticized version of this time that was in, in all reality quite painful and where the things that are going to happen next are going to break up the family. Some of what I described happens to the sisters, Agnes and Rose leaving and 25 years later dying in a poorhouse and Jack dying of his malaria and Kate losing her school teacher job. Some of that stuff actually happens after the action of the play and we learn about it because narrator Michael tells us about it. And the timing of that is interesting too, especially in conversation with this sort of re-remembering or choosing to remember different pieces, we find out about um, uh, both Agnes and Rose and then also Jack's ultimate fate, re like really only two thirds of the way through. Um, we, get, we get kind of what feels like a closing monologue about two thirds of the way through the script where he he says that like eventually they 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 left I went and found them eventually and and they died really soon afterwards Jack died later that summer or later later that next summer um so less than a year after he came home and then we get another scene and that scene is again uh like the the whole group of them kind of moving around and 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 kind of setting up uh, a dinner that they're trying to have together there's a scene between Jerry and Jack about a, a hat that they're trying to trade um and so so you you again get this sort of like even even while we know that some of these characters are going to have quite a hard rest of their life in fact Almost all of the characters have a pretty hard rest of their life, except perhaps Jerry, who we, we find another, another revelation about that makes him even more of a jerk. Um, but uh, but uh, yeah, you, you kind of get the sense that despite all of that, um, they still crafted life together. And, and, and despite all of that, he has a memory of that that sort of uh, uh, ethereal sense of belonging that he had um, in, in that space despite all of all of the sort of chaos that was around it. And this tableau image that that is the one that he reflects all of that on at the end of the play, one thing that I think is really cool is the change in the costuming mm. from the original tableau that we see to the final one that he reflects on as a false memory that's sort of hiding all of this pain that is to come for the family. 
Yeah, yeah. The, so so right away at the start, start of the play, he has an image of, I believe, both Jack and Jerry um, dressed in these sort of like quite fine outfits, um, very well uh, put together sort of military outfit for, for Jack, at least. Um, and at the end of the... And it's like shiny yeah, and yep. gorgeous. And, and Jerry's wearing this like tricorn hat that's incredible and, and like perfectly white and all this stuff. Yeah. Versus the end of the play, which we see um, that the, 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 the uniform that, that Jack had was quite old. Um, it was from a previous position that he had when he was a chaplain to the Royal Army. Um, and it doesn't fit him anymore because of the, the just the degree to which the malaria has affected him and his life has affected him. Um, and it's very dirty, um, sort of worn through, doesn't fit him, drags along the floor behind him, sort of. And and the, the scene continues. It's still like this, this trade between Jerry and Jack of two hats um, happens. Um, and it doesn't seem to bother them all that much. But you see the contrast between that original sort of very idealized memory and the sort of actuality of what was happening. And to, to me, that what's so interesting about this is the possibility that the what we see at the end is the much more realistic, uh, 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 and, you know, from years of poverty, sort of degraded versions of the uniforms and, and I think some of the rest of the costumes as well. But that the memory that Michael is describing as being this false memory is actually the one from the beginning of the play. Yeah. Where everybody's stuff is, you know, in this beautiful, perfect shape, this this great, the this sort of shining, gorgeous memory of this uniform and this hat, so that we're we're at at once seeing the real the reality of their their impoverishment and the hardship that they've endured in their life in this tableau, and at the same time, sort of remembering in the same way that Michael remembers the stuff from the beginning of the play, this this floating image of everything perfect and gorgeous and this incredible music and this slight dancing. So I, it's a really incredible technique of a dramatist, I think, to ask the audience to have a memory of that shining perfect image in the same way that Michael has this memory of this shining perfect image. Yeah, it, it welcomes the audience to critique their nostalgia. Um, uh, and, mm, yeah. and, and examine, uh, so, 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 and in a different way than it, than it would if you just like said something like that, um, because of the, because of the scene image at the beginning, you have this sort of a uh, moment where you're like, oh, how often do I think back to fill in the blank, you know, picnic, camping trip, um, someone's birthday, um, with this sort of glossy, glossy veneer, uh, and kind of holding on to that memory in a way that like it, it grounds you, um, when, when who knows what was behind the scenes and who knows what you were actually aware of even back then, um, uh, that, that maybe you've chosen to forget, or maybe you just can't remember because there's so much fog back there. It's a, it's a beautiful way to, to kind of, um, uh, I feel like I, I don't. This is this is a little bit backwards engineering this comment because I feel like the current moment of a lot of uh, art and storytelling is dealing in nostalgia and just pretty much rampant giving of nostalgia. Like here's something that you remember that you like that we know you like and so you'll enjoy it. Um, this predates that a little bit, <laughs> um, but but it is sort of uh, interesting commentary on this present moment of like. What if what if we more regularly examined our nostalgia just just a little bit to see how much of it was actually <laughs> what actually happened? And that's interesting because I, I also wonder if the reverse experience is happening too. Hmm. the idea that there is some value in holding on to the idea of, of beauty and love, like all these moments that you have, even amidst the memories of a life of real hardship and, and real loss and death and oppression. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think more so than necessarily. So we've, we've kind of talked about Michael as this sort of God character and, and, and not God character, but like memory narrator weaving in and out sort of person. Um, but what you just said, I think is clearly evident in the lies of, in the lives of Kate, Maggie, Agnes, Rose, and Chris, who resiliently choose that resiliently choose uh to to uh to, to laugh together, to remember better times together, to even in the midst of some of them not feeling the same way, um, like two or three will be, it is, it is rare, 
the rare moments where all five of them are in the moment of joy together make this play super special because most of the time two or three aren't in the same moment and they're kind of missing each other. Um, and, and the couple times when they all sing a song together or dance together or kind of hit that moment of joy together are super powerful. It's interesting. I, I, I assume, because Brian Frill's an incredible dramatist, that he knew how powerful the image I'm about to describe would be in this play. And the title of the play, of course, is a reference to it in some ways. But given how strong I think the play is related to these changing tableaus from the beginning and end, they're not, to me, and I think I would guess this is true for a lot of folks, they're not, to me, the really striking image of the play. I think the really striking image of the play is when all five sisters dance together to the radio that's finally started to work. The radio works and doesn't work throughout the play. It's kind of a faulty unit um, that they get to run sometimes and not get to run. But there's this moment in the getting in the middle of the play where the music is finally going. They've just described how some of the people that they knew have gone on to have these really gorgeous, happy lives uh, and, and are back in town for the festival and, and their lives have not been nearly like that. And finally they get the music working again and they're, you know, they don't exactly know what they're going to eat. They're worried about Jack. They're worried about Kate losing her job. But the music finally starts again and they have this incredible cathartic, visceral, Brian Freel even uses like words like grotesque and caricatured yeah. dancing moment. Four of the five sisters dancing this wild stomping in and out dance together and then Kate sort of dancing off by herself. And that, I think, is the image of the play. I, I mean, like on my cover of the play that I have, it's just like an image of a skirt and a boot dancing because the dancing is really the crucial image yeah yeah and i think there's there's so certainly there's an accessible theme there that i'll talk about in just a second um but there's also the theme of like this this festival that's happening and this catholic family with a with a pagan festival happening right next to them um that that is full of dancing and full of music um and this 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 family that has been both under scrutiny because of their uh, connection to their brother jack but also their connection to chris um and and the sort of like the rules that they think they have to follow um, and finally letting loose in that scene and dancing together, even if they can't go into the festival uh, as they plan to at one point. Um, but there's, there's just a, a beautiful tie in to what is, to what is happening with this family and, and them kind of being able to let loose with each other a little bit, even Kate, who at the very end stands up and dances kind of all on her own a little bit. Um, but, but it is, it is this sort of like, you know, how, how much do you, uh, try to find these sort of joy moments, even when there's so much wrong around you and the, and the, the all of them coming together to do it, um, makes those moments even more impactful. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I totally love how you're describing that the, the, the fact that we know there's this incredible festival with this big nostalgic to, to bring in your earlier point, uh, music dance, festival that it's especially for young people that's how they describe it and again their sense of who's old and not is a little bit from the 1930s that doesn't quite ring true to me today but that's their sense of the world in the 30s and and so they feel that they're too old for this basically festival of exuberant young people who come together to dance and and they as they're thinking about going it's their descriptions of just the the physical empowerment of being able to participate in this taxing, uh, incredible dancing that was happening at the festival. And they decide, of course, not to go. So I love how you describe that this is like there. It's like a mini festival just for them. Yeah, They get to capture a little bit of it, just them together in this room. Yeah, because because you're, you're you're right on there. They have these 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 memories of going as the Mundy sisters to this festival. It's not it's not just that they don't go because of because it's a different faith or because of of something else. This is this is a this is a, a, a town festival <laughs> that you go to, and um and part of it is is uh, tied to this the thing that you said right away at the beginning of this question of. You know, maybe we're past this moment where this festival even can be for us. Is it is would it be would it be inappropriate for us to show up to this thing, even though 
so much of the longing and so much of the uh, the hopes that that festival does offer them have not been realized realized for them, or ostensibly that the festival offers to one who engages in it have not been realized for them. Um, so so you kind of have simultaneously that fear that maybe they don't belong there, and also that longing for what it m- meant to them before, and and the still hope that somehow it could be realized. Yeah, well, and and so so much of this play has is this running theme of these again. This how they would describe it: this pagan, these pagan rituals and ceremonies, the Celtic rural pagan tradition, and then of course the the tradition that Jack brings from Africa of their spiritual experience and and their religion versus the sort of strict moral. Uh, Catholicism that 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 especially Kate sort of acts as the stand-in for, and that that's throughout. That's there. You're going to read and see a lot of that if you engage with this play. But I, to me, the 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 some of the way that that theme is expressed that resonates more with me is this conflict between like acting as they should act, the duty, the responsibility, the strictures of how we ought to behave given our economic circumstances, given the moral decisions, quote unquote, made by our family a long time ago, given how the community feels about us, how we ought to behave versus this sort of abandon this sort of letting loose, this fantasy, this desire uh, that is expressed a lot through the dancing. And so there's that moment where the sisters dance together, but there's a lot of other ones too. The Chris and uh, Jerry dancing together in both acts, there's these sort of beautiful uh, dances that they do together, which I think are the same thing. It's like, that's not really, you had a kid out of wedlock and then you abandon them and you don't pay for any of the support for the kid and all this stuff. It's not, it, it's not really supposed to be that you come back and just sweep Chris off her feet for a few minutes and then leave again. And yet it is. Yeah. Yeah. And and yeah, absolutely. The the sort of consistent choice to to engage each other. And even there's a line where I think one of the sisters notices that Chris is like a different, more more uh filled with more joy when she's around Jerry. Um, and and so there's 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 lots of that interesting. Again, like yeah, I agree, this like it shouldn't work, and yet somehow it's working. We find out more and more about Jerry. I think I've mentioned before that he has a whole other family in Wales that he just never told either family about. Um, and so, so yeah, there's 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 lots going on, um, and in in these scenes where they're they're kind of like choosing choosing to move into that zone, even though. There's a lot of fear, especially from the family in general, about like what is the proper thing to do um, or what is the maybe proper is the wrong word. What is the appropriate thing to do for our for our situation and trying to get out of it a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And, And the way that they watch and comment on what is happening both when they're in the moment and when they're outside of the moment and a- apply these judgments. Like the, the best example of that is when Chris and Jerry are talking in the garden. It's the first time that he's been to see them in months. I think it's 11 months or something like that. And, and apparently he's never really even met Michael because Michael again says, this is the first time I really ever observed my father. So Chris and him are talking in the garden and it's so that you have that scene going on. And at the same time inside the house you have a scene of the other four sisters observing commenting layering their own sense both of the the romance and the how happy chris looks of it and of the you know she should throw him out on his ear how dare he come around like this i don't exactly know what in the world they have to talk about how could they possibly be dancing together so all of the commentary the sort of internal life of the the brain that they express through this chattering conversation with each other about this moment that is at once not supposed to happen and uh sort of beautiful in the way that it happens yeah yeah and 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 you kind of consist like there's 
There's so many like small moments. This is a play that you could go back and rewatch and rewatch or reread and reread and find something new again. Um, there's 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 like there's the undercurrent of of what you just described. There's the undercurrent of Agnes maybe having some feelings for Jerry. Um, and a sort of a odd scene, not odd scene, but a tense scene. Um, where she and Jerry are dancing to the radio. Um, and Chris goes and turns the radio off and kind of resets things. It's a very brief scene. It goes away pretty quickly. Um, but there's lot just just like again, this is uh, kind of speaking into how this play is a family play as well. Um, as much as it's a memory play, it's also this play about like this is what you know family lives with trying to navigate this really hard situation together. There's all sorts of things that you get brief glimpses into that that ultimately maybe lead to consequences like maybe that's part of Agnes's decision to leave with Rose um uh is is the the this sort of consistent uh, uh friction there but but you don't really see you don't see a scene where she says that um it's all these kind of small moments for you both as both it's exciting both as an audience member to examine them but also as a as a an actor or a production team to examine them too that's what kind of consistently gives this play something more to play with is, is these characters and digging deeply into them. And the, the way that the sort of symbology of what they're doing kind of plays into the memory too. Like the dancing is such a strong symbol that it sticks in the head and it's sort of a, a representative, you know, what, what happened to them. And those are the things Michael remembers. I mean, I, I always find that the struggle with memory plays, Lemon Sky, I think does this a little better than Glass Menagerie actually, is that we don't remember i mean extended conversations in the way that plays present that we do right i mean we just don't like you know the glass menagerie there's like 20 minute scenes of really intense conversations there's just no way that you remember every word everybody said so there's a, a sort of false reality to the to the memories right but tom in glass menagerie comments on these are the things i actually remember and then in lemon sky they, they play a little bit more with like these are the things i wish i remembered this is how it could have gone and that kind of stuff and and and, and dancing at lunas this is he does that too the stuff he describes the stuff that he really remembers and they tend to be these sort of highly symbolic representative things the sisters dancing together seeing his father for the first time this false memory of these gorgeous clothes and the music playing and the, the sort of slight dancing that they're all doing the rest of it is really for our benefit as the audience to understand the context of these these memories that he holds far into the future. And again, to welcome us into the act of, of examining his memories at the very least, um, and possibly kind of extending it to ourselves as well. And wondering about our own families, about our own pasts, about all, all the things that we remember from our waking times and, uh, and, and yeah, taking another look at it and, and examining how it brought us to where we are today. Well, I think we are about out of time for this conversation. It's true. It's true. Again, like as as I said a couple minutes ago, this this play has such depth um, and such uh, rewatchability, restageability. Um, so uh, there's certainly stuff that we missed in this conversation. Uh, we would love to keep having it with all of you, though. We don't have to stop the conversation at the end of the podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those sites, and if you have been in this play, read this play, watch this play, watch the movie, just like know stuff about this play or about the moment that it is written for we would love to keep talking about dancing at lunasa with you absolutely if you like this conversation or any of our other conversations please ask your family your friends anybody you know that likes scripts theater stories anything like that to check us out we are on podbean google play apple Podcasts, spotify now youtube we're in a lot of places for you to be able to find us an easy way to do it if folks have a hard time with technology is if they've got a facebook account they can just like us on facebook and then you know hopefully in their feed our new episode will appear as it comes every monday or they can just find our page and the new episode is up every monday on our facebook page you can just click and it'll play for you we're just getting started on this season. We got a good number of episodes coming up. So until next week when we're 
talking about another script. I am Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script, the podcast.